My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Maingan Henry. A key focus of struggle in many regions of the country today is against pipelines and other sorts of fossil fuel-related developments that put profits before the well-being of, well, of all human and non-human life on the planet, really. In many places, it is indigenous nations that are on the forefront of the resistance to pipelines. There are many reasons for this. It is, after all, indigenous land that companies are attempting to build on without permission, and a strong relationship to land is integral to indigeneity. It's also connected to the broader resurgence of indigenous nations and cultures, part of which involves asserting rights and traditional responsibilities in ways that past colonial circumstances did not always allow. And partly, the prominent indigenous role in this struggle is a product of specific aspects of how settler colonialism in Northern Turtle Island has come to be, where part of how settler legal and political systems have historically responded to the unceasing indigenous resistance of the past five centuries has involved making tactical concessions by recognizing rights that amount to fractions and fragments of the sovereignty and self-determination which indigenous nations have never surrendered. However partial and incomplete, these rights recognized by the settler state can be a way to win certain kinds of practical victories and can be a basis for expanding the rights and powers of First Nations. Line 9 is a pipeline that has existed for around 40 years. Historically, it has carried oil from Montreal, Quebec, to Sarnia, Ontario. More recently, the company that owns it, Enbridge, has sought permission to reverse the flow in the pipeline in order to carry not ordinary oil, but bitumen from the tar sands to Montreal for export. In order to get this much thicker and heavier substance to flow requires diluting it with a greater range and amount of toxic chemicals. One of the many communities through which Line 9 flows is Chippewa of the Thames First Nation. When the pipeline was first built in the 1970s, nobody bothered to ask Chippewa of the Thames what they thought about it, and at the time it was all they could do to survive in the face of residential schools and other aspects of institutionalized settler colonial violence. With the recent application to reverse the flow, however, and to bring an even more toxic substance through an aging pipeline in a way that puts lives and land at risk, people in Chippewa of the Thames decided that they had to act. In a relatively short time, they developed community knowledge and capacity, and they intervened in the regulatory hearings at the National Energy Board. When the NEB decided in favor of Enbridge, the folks in Chippewa of the Thames were determined to keep up the fight. Though they have not ruled out taking direct action if necessary at some later stage, for the moment they're fighting through the settler legal system. Their argument is that the federal government has not adequately fulfilled its constitutionally enshrined duty to consult with their nation. They lost in the federal court of appeal, but, despite mounting costs, they decided to push forward with a request to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court of Canada. 
When this interview was recorded, they did not yet know whether they would be granted leave to appeal, but since that point, the Supreme Court has announced that it will hear the case. Myengan Henry is a band counselor for Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, and looking after the legal challenge to the Line 9 pipeline is one of his responsibilities in that role. He speaks with me about the land, about the threat posed by the pipeline, and about the legal struggle that his nation is waging to stop it. We spoke by Skype to phone from Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario. My name is Mayingan. I'm a band counselor for Chippewas of the Thames First Nation in southern Ontario. One of the jobs that I'm asked to do is to look after one issue that's surrounding our nation. It's the pipeline that's running through our territory and to look at ways to deal with some of the scenarios that the government has put in place for protecting Aboriginal rights, and that's duty to consult. And we've taken that to a level of trying to determine what duty to consult is and what's the government's role in terms of dealing with First Nations. I've been able to get in contact with the proponents that are running pipelines through our territory and work with them to the point of having a, a conversation about our concerns. The government of Canada hasn't really been very active in terms of our conversations, but because of Section 35 in the Canadian Constitution, their job is to acknowledge that anything that infringes on the lifestyle of Aboriginal people, there needs to be a consultation process. So we stand at a point where resolving environmental hazards in our territory comes to a point where we have to ask the government to step in and to do what's their obligation under the Constitution. And so that's what we're doing right now. And unfortunately, we've had to go to court in order to let them hear our side of it. And we lost in our initial court case, which was the Federal Court of Appeals. But we also had a dissenting judge that told us that we had the ability to move forward to a Supreme Court decision. And that's where we are today, trying to work on getting the government to recognize their obligation for duty to consult, which they won't be able to pass approvals over to an entity called the National Energy Board. So in essence, it, it's a big process that we have to go through. Definitely a strong case for future pipelines throughout Canada. But more importantly, for our First Nation, our responsibility to the land is even more important that the land stays healthy and safe. So that's kind of where we are with it right now. Based on recent decisions in BC where their Supreme Court decided that duty to consult has to be triggered in dealing with First Nations. I think we're going in with a lot of recent knowledge, recent strengths, and that's going to give us a chance to win this court battle. Chippewa's Attempts First Nation has been in southern Ontario since time immemorial. If we go back to our creation stories, uh, how we came to be, if we do anything about First Nation history, you know, in the spiritual sense, we came from the land. We're part of our mother, the earth, and our people from the Great Lakes region, the majority is the Anishinaabe people that's always had this territory since the creation. And we feel that this is the territory that we have to protect as all other nations in the world, indigenous nations, protect the land. Our nation has grown throughout the years. Other nations that are still Anishinaabe, such as Amzalan First Nation, Walpool, Kettle Point, Stony Point, we're all still one family. We definitely are in this together. As we understand, we will protect our mother of the earth. 
And our young people are, are learning now. We've gone through a tragic history in terms of residential schools. We actually had one on our first nation called Mount Elgin Residential School where our children were subject to attend and where their language and their culture were ultimately taken from them or ruled illegal. And during that time, we kind of lived in an area that was growing in an industrial area in southern Ontario where a lot of our people had been taken away from their culture but kind of joined into the atmosphere that was around us and didn't practice our culture. Although there were a few that maintained the culture, we, for the most part, kind of grew with society. And during the time of the 70s when the proposed pipeline was put into the ground, we were just coming out of residential schools still disillusioned in in terms of what we had to endure at those residential schools. So we weren't really participating in decisions such as pipelines and environmental things that were happening in our community. So it went ahead without our consult during that time. And over the time since then, we've changed our approach. We've started learning about our own rights as Aboriginal people. We've started learning about our own history. We started seeing that our role here in Southern Ontario was to protect the earth because we got a lot of our culture back. Our elders were still alive and they were telling us what our role was. But now we move forward to a time when many of our band members have become highly educated in environmental issues. We have legal people now who help us in decisions such as how to deal with these constitutional, what I would call disruptions that wasn't placed on our community. And we've come to a level of now understanding that we have a role that's protected by the Constitution, but we also have a bigger role of protecting the earth. And so when Line 9 came to our attention, we decided that we were going to act on this. We decided that this is something that the community felt deep-heartedly, that in order to stop the dangers that we've seen tar sands can present, we needed to get on board and try to stop this tar sands oil from traveling through our territory. So when the pipeline was traveling like crude oil from Montreal to Sarnia for a number of years, we didn't get too much involved in that until an application went in to change the direction of flow from Sarnia to Montreal and to uh, run tar sands oil from Saskatchewan through this pipeline. So we've heard very clearly that the pipeline that was first put into the ground, the lifespan of that pipeline was to be 40 years. And it's now 40 years with an aging pipeline, and now they want to put tar sands oil through this pipeline. We think that there's going to be a breakage in that pipeline someplace relatively soon. We have some knowledgeable people that has determined that within a year and a half, there will be a a break in that line someplace. And when that break happens, it devastates land and water. So that's how we got involved with this. We decided that in order to protect our traditional territory, we need to take this to the courts and hopefully they'll see that something has been neglected here, such as the duty to consult. And I think that's where our community is right now. We're all on board. We intend to take this as far as we can in the legal system so that we can actually continue to practice our ceremonies and our culture and medicine picking within our region without disruption and without dangers of those pipelines bursting. It's a very expensive process. It's definitely going to cause hardship for our community just to pay for lawyers, just to accommodate 
information that we need to give to our band members and others, but we're willing to take this on and we're willing to do what's right for the land because I think if the land gets disrupted, then we get disrupted. If the land is hurt, then we get hurt. We're all part of the land regardless, and we have to do something to protect it. We're seeing that with climate change right now. We're seeing uh, what issues could take place if we don't look after our environment. And we know that it's a major, major issue around the world right now. So our First Nation is willing to uh, do what we can to protect the territory that we've always been in. Tell me more about the potential impacts of the pipeline that you're concerned about. Our nation took a ride to Marshall, Michigan a couple of years ago where in 2010 the same pipeline and the same type of oil spilled out of that pipeline and five, six years later the land is still devastated. The water that it infected is still damaged to the point where the fish can't spawn and the medicines can't grow. Tar sands oil is very rich, thick oil that needs to be diluted and they use various chemicals to make it flow through a pipeline. So the difference between the light crude that they ran before, they didn't have to dilute it the way that they have to do tar sand oil. And this type of chemicals that they use to make it flow through the line is increasingly dangerous. If it gets spilled, that's where most of the damage comes from. And what we see in our region where the line crosses under the Thames River, going directly to our community, It'll be poisoning our, our water supply. A lot of our families still fish in the Thames River. The pickerel spawn every spring, and some of the families still use that for their sustenance. They wouldn't be able to do that once this chemical gets into the river. It'll pass through parts of London where many people use the river for recreation and fishing. Definitely a major concern to our watershed and our water resource because we drink out of the Thames River. So it's very concerning to us, and the direct impact will be very, very dangerous to our community. Tell me about your community's process in making the decision to take up this issue and leading into the National Energy Board hearings. Our nation put together a lands department a number of years ago. We started seeing that there are systems that we have to know about in order to become interveners in some of the processes because we didn't realize previous to our department that there was a process to go to hearings, you know, when they have public hearings for proposals for pipelines and things like that. We weren't really not aware of that or had the capacity to do that. But once we decided to put a land department together, we started learning the process, and that's what we did in this case. We applied for intervener status, and when the hearings came up in Toronto, we participated. We had legal counsel. We had community counsel, although that part was a tough area because they didn't understand it very well either, so we had to create an education system that will allow people to know their rights as Aboriginal people and as regular Canadians to intervene in some of these scenarios that were going to come up. So the process has been actually fast in one sense, our community had to learn the process rather quickly, and line nine was right on our doorstep. So we decided to accommodate our community by hosting community meetings. We brought legal counsel to those meetings that talked about our rights as protected under the Constitution, like duty to consult, and how these dangerous scenarios will affect our community. And the community started learning. 
and they wanted us as a band council to take a reactive approach to this, so that's what we did. But, you know, we decided that the legal system doesn't always work in our favor. The Constitution sometimes, it doesn't align with First Nations values. So we decided that maybe if we talk to Enbridge face-to-face, let's see if there's a way that we can talk about our concerns directly with the source, and that's the direction that we took. So we ended up going to Calgary a number of times to engage with them, to tell them that our concerns are protection of our earth. And one scenario was that we even talked about profit sharing. You know, if there was a case where we couldn't stop this oil from coming through, would they even consider that? And they they shut the door on us completely when it came to anything to do with their profits. We talked about historical payments because we know that every municipality where that pipeline runs through they had to pay taxes to that municipality. And this is our traditional territory. They've never paid a cent into our community or even made an offer to do that. So we tried to talk to them on those basis to see where they would maybe leverage some of these ideas they had. And that was out of the question. That was totally not a part of their discussion. And so I think we tried in various scenarios to deal with this issue directly with them, but they didn't seem to care too much Yeah, they will talk about environmental protection, and they try to tell us that the integrity of this line meets the standards, but the danger still exists, and we know that. So we decided to take the legal approach, and that's where we are today. And tell me about the National Energy Board hearings themselves. Well, we took into consideration our traditional usage of the land. We had a land use study conducted where we told them traditionally we would use this land for gathering medicines and to fish definitely and to, you know, take care of that land. In the hearings, they heard that our community was very concerned along with other First Nations where the line runs through, and we went in conjunction with another First Nation. Amdenong First Nation with actually the same lawyer that spoke to them about our concerns and they heard. We stood up with the Truro Wampum telling them that our original treaties talked about resource sharing and not overpowering another nation. And that's what they heard from us that when contact started here in this part of the world, we initiated many of the treaties that would lay out the foundation for our relationship. And the National Energy Board heard that, but we also noted that many of the people on National Energy Board were oil people who were protecting an interest that was of high profit for them, too. So we kind of felt that it was, in a sense, a biased type of scenario we're trying to sell this knowledge to. But our argument was strong. Our lawyers talked very clearly about our role in protection of the Constitution. So after the hearing, it went down to deliberation and they decided that they would still approve the pipeline. Tell me about both the decision to appeal and the process of it. Well, we looked at different scenarios of what we can do. We've seen over the years how Native people reacted to very important items, like uh, we've seen Nipperwash, we've seen Caledonia, we've seen Oka, you know, we've seen various, various, I guess it would be civil disobedience among First Nations. And we noted that that's something that we would have to consider at some point, but our nation wanted to take a legal approach. We said we would try this method because that's the system that's set up to hear or supposed to hear us in an unbiased manner. 
And so we said Chippewa of the Thames First Nation will stand with the legal authority on this type of scenario right now because it sets the stage for other communities also. If we can kind of get this determined in court, then other nations around the country will have a precedent set so that they have to be consulted and they have to be recognized in these dangerous scenarios. So we thought that was probably the best method for not just for our nation, but for many nations that are going through this process right now. Once we heard we lost in the Federal Court of Appeals, we decided we're not done yet. We still have a chance. The costs are mounting, but we will take that risk and move it right to the Supreme Court. What's your sense of the reasoning behind the Federal Court of Appeals' decision to reject your appeal? There was a misconception on who actually holds the duty to consult obligation. The government of Canada says that they appointed a board that would determine outcomes on on applications. So in their argument, they're stating that they appointed a board to make those decisions, which they created, like the National Energy Board, to do that. So their argument is that that's the body that made that decision. Our argument to that is that the National Energy Board is not the government of Canada. We have to deal on a nation-to-nation basis on especially constitutional issues, and they can't build an entity that is going to do that. And it was interesting in the court case, is that the National Energy Board reverted to Enbridge, the proponent, to carry out the consultation process. So it was kind of going around and around. Uh, Nobody wanted to hold the responsibility of duty to consult. The government said they gave it to the National Energy Board. National Energy Board said they gave it to Enbridge. And then there was no clear direction. So I think that's what this court case is going to identify is that nation-to-nation relationship with First Nations, especially on constitutional issues, will be more or less defined, and uh, it'll be a lot clearer picture for all the other nations down the road. It's my understanding that some nations, at least, are very clear that for it to be a meaningful consultation, it has to include a right for them to say no to whatever the proposal is, if that's what the people of the nation decide. Is that a position that Chippewa of the Thames takes? Well, we definitely need to identify that because what we came to understand is they've developed a checklist of how they consult with that First Nation. Even if they made a phone call, they talked to a chief or a counselor, made any attempt to create a consultation, that was their checklist of dealing with consultation. And we're saying that that's not adequate because what they do when they call us and we set up a meeting with the government of Canada. If that meeting doesn't go in the way that the government kind of wanted it, they still consider that to be a part of that consultation process. Sometimes we start meetings and say, we're not going to consider this a consultation until we both agree on that. So you can't take this information back and say that we've consulted with the Chippewas and Times First Nation because it wasn't an agreed consultation process. And that's really where we see happening all the time. They build up letters and meeting dates and lawyer letters and things like that and create what they consider a consultation process. But we need to be a participant in that. There's nobody that consults without having both parties recognizing it as consultation. So without this being laid out, this is going to continue with First Nations across Canada. They're going to say that they consulted with us, but that consultation has to be on both sides ratified that way. And that's not been done here. 
not at all, because the government of Canada has never, ever gave us a phone call. We've asked, we said, you know, all it takes is a conversation with the government of Canada, but they elected to say that the National Energy Board is going to do that. And they still haven't done that. So that's where the problem, I think, lies, is not having that proper consultation in place. And this court case is going to make them build a protocol. It's going to make them create an avenue where the First Nations are definitely consulted. And yes, no might be within that framework when First Nations decide. This government has said that they would look at a new approach to First Nation issues. They said they would endorse the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And free, prior, and informed consent are a huge part of what those documents talk about. We need to be in consultation with anything that affects our people in our traditional territory. And for people who are listening, who are in other parts of Ontario, other parts of Canada, and who are supportive of what your nation is doing, how would you suggest they act in support? Right now, we really need financial support. Our legal case is going to cost us upward of probably half a million dollars when it's all said and done, maybe up to three quarters of a million. I think what they can do right now is participate by talking to their MP, saying that there's a scenario happening in southern Ontario that they're concerned about, that the government has neglected to live up to Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution in consulting our First Nation. Most Canadians, when they hear that, they should be appalled that there's a process that's been eliminated by the government of Canada. They've never consulted us, and that's what's in the Constitution of Canada. So they can make that argument to their MPs and maybe even create, like what I've seen happen in Montreal and in Waterloo, groups of people who are talking about these things and get this message out there, but definitely... They can go to our GoFundMe contribution page or our FundMe's contribution page. It's crowdfunding to support in any way. Give us a call. Give us a support letter from any organization or company or whatever their community has to say that they understand that Chippewa's attempt is taking an approach that I think is going to be beneficial to all Canadians. I just wanted to reiterate the unity that's being demonstrated through this process. I really think that it's creating an atmosphere where people are looking at First Nations, not just environmental issues, but the history of our people, residential schools. I'd like to see most people take a look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission call to action so that we can all start working on this approach together. First Nations in this country live a lot less financially, socially, economically compared to most Canadians. We need to lessen that gap. In order to do that, we need people to be aware. And so to take this as an opportunity by creating that partnership that the treaties talked about a long time ago. You have been listening to my interview with Mayengan Henry, a band counselor in Chippewa of the Thames First Nation in southern Ontario. We've been talking about his nation's legal challenge to the Line 9 Tar Sands Pipeline, which runs through their territory. To learn more about it and to donate in support, you can search for Chippewa of the Thames on the Fundly and GoFundMe crowdfunding platforms. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.